State of the Union speeches are always better than the opposition says, a little less than the party in power says. President Trump's first State of the Union earlier this week touted progress his administration has made, but it wasn't the whole story. Joining me for an assessment, less of the speech perhaps, but more on the first year, Don Kettle, professor of public policy at the University of Maryland. And I guess, Don, your students must be really talking a lot about this because the first time any of us saw a State of the Union from this particular president. They're talking about it, they're engaged, they're fascinated, and they're trying to figure out what it is that's going on because there's this incredible paradox of, on the one hand, we've got such big, serious, huge problems, but on the other hand, it's very clear that people are looking for solutions. And their question, the question for a lot of us is, can we find a way to make the system work to actually get to the finish line on something here? So that's one of the big issues that came out of the president's speech. Is there some way to be able to fashion some bipartisan agenda on which we could actually get some action? With respect to the federal government itself, the president did have a couple of unusual comments, I thought. One with respect to asking for legislation that would make it easier to both reward good federal employees and to get rid of the bad ones with some more alacrity, I guess. Well, that's exactly right. And that was something that flew by fairly quickly. But this is likely to be a very big issue, not only because it represents part of what it is that the Republicans have been trying to do actually for some time, which is to try to shrink the size of the federal workforce and to try to, in particular, make it easier to fire poor performers. This is something that's a kind of point of the spear at the VA that is likely to roll out more broadly across the rest of the government. But the second shoe that's about to drop, I suspect, is that when the president's budget comes out, the strategic planning process that the agencies have gone through and the workforce initiatives that are going to be buried in it are likely to stir up ripples across the entire government. So in many ways, this is not only an effort to try to take the efforts that they've been making on the VA and spread it more broadly, but as a symbol and a sign of what's likely to be happening in the not-too-distant future, this is just a, a hint, I think, of the battles and the debates that are going to come. So I think that even though that was a fairly short part of the speech, it's likely to be a very big part of the debate that we're going to be having over the next couple months that's likely to start very soon. We should point out, though, that the VA reform bills, and there have been a slew of them, about seven or eight big bills in the last year or so, did have bipartisan support. And that included the greater flexibility that VA management has to move people in and out. Exactly. And it's one of the things that, in fact, both the Democrats and Republicans have been able to coalesce around. The idea is that veterans need better care. They shouldn't have to wait for it. The current VA system is making it hard to hire people and especially sometimes to fire poor performers. But on that point in particular, I went and dug up some of the numbers after the speech. And believe it or not, the president was claiming credit on the one hand for removing 1,500 VA employees, but that's actually substantially less than was happening during the Obama administration. And on average, in Obama's second term, it turns out the VA was firing about 2,500 employees per year for cause, so that the 1,500 number is lower. And it's also clear that at some point we have to realize we're not likely to be able to just fire our way to success. We just can't say, well, we're going to fire you and fire you and fire you until sooner or later everybody gets the message. Whatever it is that's going on, that simply is just not working. Well, I guess the question should also be put in the context of what would a corporation with 330,000 employees, that would be on the order of, say, Ford Motor Company or something, how many people do they dismiss for cause a year? And actually, when rooting around, it's really hard to get good private sector numbers. But as best I can tell, the rate at which the VA fires for cause is not appreciably lower than what happens in the private sector. 
especially if you account for the fact that we have a fairly substantial number of of professionals like doctors and other specialists who are in the VA. The rate of firing is just not a whole lot lower than what seems to be the case in the private sector. It's a large organization. It's clear that it's got problems in getting enough of the right people in the right places at the right time. But whatever it is that's going on in the VA, and we know we've got problems to solve, it is not clear at all that just firing more people is going to solve the problem. What we really have to do is to try to think about what kind of mission we want the VA to pursue, how best to try to hire people who can actually pursue it, how to make sure people are accountable. And it's got to be a much more fundamental question that gets to the heart of the problem. And so it's been easy on on Capitol Hill to get people to support the idea of, well, we're going to just keep firing them until they get the message. And that's been something that actually has attracted bipartisan support, but it's clearly not solved the problem. Now, the VA has made some success, but it's not going to continue to be able to make success simply by focusing on the hiring and firing question. It's, It's managing the workforce in the way, in fact, that GM or Ford or some other major organization would, which is, what are we trying to do? What kind of people do we need to do it? How do we get them? How do we motivate them? How do we hold them accountable? That's what great private sector companies do and what the federal government has to learn how to do much better. We're speaking with Don Kettle, professor of public policy at the University of Maryland. And from a public management perspective, what are some other takeaways that you heard? And, And maybe in the larger sense, what do you expect for the rest of the term from what we've seen in the first year of it? An underlying piece of this was his argument about eliminating bad regulations. There was, of course, the discussion about the war on coal. But more importantly, is an effort quietly to try to unwind some of the regulations that have existed out there. This is in part for policy reasons, also in part to try to create more flexibilities. It's something that appeals very clearly to his base. And I think what we're going to be seeing is more of an effort across the board, not in the headlines, not in the second level, subheads, but in some of the operations to try to unwind a fair number of federal regulations. And that's something that's going to be worth very much paying attention to. That's a very, very big deal and something that we need to pay more attention to. Uh, A third thing that's worth talking about is the proposal for infrastructure. And the original plan was $1 trillion. Last night, the president was talking about $1.5 trillion. And the idea is to try to improve roads, bridges, and all the rest of the facilities we have out there, but who is going to pay for this? That piece has come out, but underlying it is the question of how are we going to manage the process of paying for it? Is it going to be direct federal spending? How much of it's going to be? What kind of leverage is there going to be? And what kind of role is the federal government going to have in steering this process? And that's something that is a, is a very big process, very big question, quite apart from who's going to pay to the question of how are we going to manage that process? This is going to be a very big deal for federal employees and for the federal government in figuring out a strategy that works. And then a last point, I guess, that I'd point out right now is that the president, and again, this is one of his quick drive-bys in the speech that hasn't received a lot of attention yet, but he's talking about ending the defense sequester. And uh, it's worth going back. We, We have this crazy sequestration process because we knew that we wanted to try once upon a time to have some control over the federal deficit and to reduce the national debt. We know that we wanted to try to find some way to be able to balance spending increases in both defense and in in domestic spending. So we created this weird process that everybody knew we'd never possibly do. It'd be just so draconian, we would never have automatic cuts for defense and 
domestic programs, but in fact, we ended up having them because nobody could figure out a way to do things otherwise. Pulling defense out of that upsets everything we've been talking about for almost a decade in dealing with the process of managing the federal budget. So not only is there a question of how much more money we're going to spend on defense, but what are we going to do about domestic spending? What is this going to do for the deficit and the underlying process of actually getting any kind of predictable budget process back in place? So for federal employees in particular, the question is, where is this going to go and how much certainty is there going to be about the way the process is going to work? And I wondered why he did not address, and really we haven't heard about this much in several years, but just a small change in interest rates would drive the federal debt service payments up so much that we'd really have a budget squeeze on the so-called discretionary part of the budget. And that gets to the whole question of the deficits and of the structure of the really 3.3 or whatever it is, trillion dollars that the government now spends, not just the one trillion on what we call discretionary. Exactly. And that's one of the things that is perhaps the, the, the one bit of silver lining and the awful economic problems that we had to try to deal with back in 2008 and 2009. The Fed to deal with that drove interest rates to almost zero, and that means that the federal government hasn't had to pay very much to keep the debt going. At some point, those interest rates are going to come back up, and the Fed's already started to do that. And as interest rates rise for everybody else, it will rise for what the federal government has to pay in financing the national debt. And as that happens, it's either going to raise the deficits and therefore the debt higher and or put a bigger squeeze on everything else that the federal government is putting money on, assuming that we pay attention to how much the deficit is these days. And so the, the, the free lunch, in a sense, that we've had in financing the deficit and the debt may be coming to an end in the not-too-distant future, and that's going to be a further squeeze on things. So that the, the question in the out years of figuring out what we're going to do about defense, what are we going to do about de- domestic spending, what are we going to do about financing the deficit, how much are we going to care about how much the deficit and the debt are, and at what point will that become a constraint again on what we do in terms of managing the federal budget and in terms of just creating a budget process that works, all are going to end up rolling together. And so those are big issues that are looking out there in the not-too-distant future. Don Kettle is Professor of Public Policy at the University of Maryland. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsradio.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to all of our interviews at iTunes or Podcast One.